I can tell you straight to your face right now, it is the hardest selection process in the world. And it is the best special forces unit in the world. I've worked with all, either with or against most special forces around the globe. And we are head and shoulders above everyone. Fact. Today, if somebody hasn't got the latest designer jeans or the internet for two hours, they've got fucking PTSD. And that's why we're having the situations today of so many poor people that are taking their own lives because they can't, they're not getting the help that we need. Well, look, I know you've done loads of these interviews and what I'd really like to do today is get into the mind of one of the highest ranking SAS uh, soldiers in the public eye today. Um, so Mark, can I take you back um, to your childhood? You were brought up in Warsaw, um, a bit of a fighter, uh, which I relate to being brought up in the 70s in Newcastle. Yeah, fighting was a big thing. Uh, what do you think, or what do you think that fighting spirit was all about? Where do you think it came from, Mark? I think, you know, it was. I came from a poor area, poor background. You know, not that's, that's an excuse. No, I'm not looking for an excuse. I think I was looking for trying to, a status, trying to, somebody you know because i was young and I, I and i'm a middle child middle child we're all different we really are and um you know i remember seeing all the gangs around my area and the older guys who'd been in brawls and been in and out of um, child prison and all and thinking that was the right thing and that was tough because everybody seemed to know them and kind of look up to them for some strange reason i thought that's who i want to be i want to be a tough guy so i set out on this journey to prove myself yeah, so that was it. You know, I was looking for status, I think. I was looking to try and be somebody, you know. I wanted to be, like, the face, the name around town. And I mean, looking back, I think it was stupid. But it's that time in your life where you don't know who you are, what you are, or where you're going, you know. How do you think that served you today, that sort of fighting little boy? It, it, gave, it gave me the grit, the courage, and the, 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 the willpower to never give up. You know, it really did. And that, that's helped me, especially through my military life, getting into the military and then the life I had through the military, you know, which was tough. We had some hard, hard times. And just having that background, that foundation, it gives you a foundation. Mm. I could fall back on it. You know, being hard, being wet, being uncomfortable, being somebody trying to hurt you, there's nothing new to me. You just yeah. get on and get on. It, it, it almost became part of life. You just get on with it. So... That childhood gave me a great foundation, you know, as hard as it was. And a lot of the lessons I learned through that childhood, I, I never want to repeat. I wouldn't like to see anybody else go through all my kids, you know. You know, it's a classic case of don't reinvent the wheel. So I pass on my lessons through the book, through talks, through talking to people of don't go the route I did. And to be fair, I had a little bit of that myself, you know, through the older generations. As a young kid in that crazy world that I was in of thinking I was tough, I did gravitate towards older people. And I thought, I kind of knew, I was smart enough to know then, they've been through this. And I'd listen to them, you take a bit of it, and then go and sample your own way anyway. But I guess I had a little bit of knowledge, which maybe if I hadn't have spoke to these people, I probably wouldn't be sat here speaking to you now. I would have gone totally wayward. 
uh, I'd like to get back to that point where you where you think you'd be if you'd gone down a different path. And maybe this is the this is the incident. Um, there was a there was an incident at the begin in, in the beginning of the book that where you talk about stealing hats. Um, and you still or you tried to steal one gentleman's hat. Can you tell me a little bit about that incident and what impact it had on your life? um you know it, it was a crazy little fetish i was looking for for um status as i said and i thought everybody's doing different things i thought oh, i'll steal these hats i don't know why i did it well for any reason but i stole lots of them and it was easy because all older guys you know generally 78 year old people this one particular day i stole this out and the old guy he caught me and he was a big old fella you know and he chased me and my two friends who were with me my two friends legged it left on my own rightly so and i ran into a dead end and he captured me and i was expecting a good hiding so i he's got me trapped and i just jump into a boxing stance never boxed in my life and he just stood up and he said i'm gonna have to swear i'm sorry but this one said to me you you little shit he said there's something about you keep the hat and he said come to my gym and i thought that was weird so but i went i threw the hat at back to him as he grabbed it, i ran and i remembered where he told me where the gym was, which I knew anyway, it was a pub where my dad drank. And I went there. The next day I went there, I was I was nine years old, you know, and you can imagine, you imagine your child today, if you have a nine year old going, walking downtown, six o'clock, seven o'clock at night in the dark, in a February through the snow to meet an old man around the pub. Someone told me to do that. Well, it's the safest place he's ever been today. You know, we've all got communications. There's more streetlights anywhere. Mm -hmm everywhere there's more people about there's cameras everywhere of course you've got to be sensible why it comes dangerous but when we were growing up I was, I was growing in my time there was none of that there was hardly any street lamps you know there was hardly there was certainly no mobile phones and it was just a bizarre but something told me go and meet this guy and he became a very influential man and i can't even remember his name i think it was robert mitchum like the film star and this old boy he, he probably had a similar lifestyle to i had where somebody must have given him a chance because he had no reason to do that. And anyway, he took me into this boxing club that he was running and it was uh, all poor kids from my... It was gangs that I'd been fighting against. So I knew all the people in there, by face mainly. And he taught me how to box and he taught, told me what boxing was about. And he said, boxing's not a sport of brutality. Boxing's a poor man's game of chess. And he stood me there and said, it's about what you see in front of you, anticipating the next move, reading what is coming towards you, being able to use your mind and your feet to get you out of trouble he said you'll win your fight if you box with that and your feet not this being smarter being ready to move and block it and he told me all these things and he's and and the, the key word was and this is very very true i always talk about this is he said to me when you feel like you can't go anymore you can always go a little further always a little further and he said to me i i know never never forget it he might have been not the exact words but that's what he said and then, it, you know, later on in life, I end up in the SAS. And that's our, our mantra. It's on our clock tail, you know, for the unfortunate people that didn't come back from war and stuff. Yeah, always a little further was the last line. What you mentioned um, there that he saw something in you. What do you think he saw in you? Drive, ambition, wanting to do something. Not, not you know, willing to get get up and go forward i had an energy i suppose you you could tell probably like i can you can read people i love to sit on a sunday morning and have a coffee and read people you can go ah oh, 
he's gone through a bad time, or she's gone through, or they're not together. That's an affair. <laughs> or they're about to break up. Do you know what I mean? You can read people. Cafe watching is great fun. It is absolutely. So I think, you know, and, and I've had the, the you know, the experience of being a, a directing staff in the parachute regiment, and they says, I know how to read people. So I guess he was able to read me and think, all right, he's a naughty kid. He's got good energy. I can see what he's probably trying to do and I can help him. I can make some good of this kid. I can put him on the straight and narrow as best I can and give him an opportunity, give him a chance. I guess he just wanted to give, give me a chance. And, but what he saw in me was I think energy and drive. Do you think that was a quite a pinnacle point in your life? Did that change potentially where you were going? It was definitely one of many. I, I, I was very fortunate to meet a number and we can talk about it a bit later on, but yeah, he was, he was definitely a pinnacle in my life because I was nine years old and I'd already been drunk on whiskey. I'd been in fights, you know, I'd been stealing. I was already going, going crazily off the tracks and he basically went, right, stop, put me on the tracks. And he kept controlling me and taught me things over like a, three times a week. So Monday nights, Wednesday nights and, and Friday nights, I was there. I was turning up on time in training because I was loving it. I was loving what I was learning and I was loving being disciplined. So as much as people go, I hate being told what to do and I hate discipline, that's bullshit. We all get told what to do anyway. And I was embracing it. It made me feel good. But then it made me, not to become like a robot, it made me, he taught me how to do something. And then I thought I'll try my own little way of doing things. And again, he saw to me potential. Well, you know what? You, you can think outside the box. And he was a great influential guy in my life. Of course, I was still getting in trouble quite a bit at school. Well, in school when I was, was in school, which wasn't very often. And, you know, on the days that I wasn't going training, I was still that naughty kid. But he, he, had he not been there, my direction of trouble was like that now. It would still be like this. That's where kids, that's where everybody starts, you know, a petty little thief, stealing cars, fighting, drugs, which I've never got into, thank God. Um, you know, and it goes on and goes on and you end up down that rabbit hole. You end up in that wrong side of the law and you, you're nailed. And then you took it one stage further. You joined the, the Paris, the Parachute Regiment. How was, because you joined very young, you joined as a teenager, teenager. How was it being in that regiment, essentially going from a boy to a man in those years? Yeah, I, I'll tell you honestly, I mean, I think because I was a cadet anyway, I knew and I, there was a choice why I went to the, to the parachute regiment. And it was, you know, having spoke to a lot of people after the Falklands War, the Falklands War had come back. And these were these are what I think I aspired. I really wanted to be. I was always looking up to somebody thinking, I want to be like that person. There. I, want to be, I want to be that tough guy, the guy who had stupid tattoos under his eyes and broken nose. And I, thought, oh, I want to be like him. He's a tough guy initially. And then as I went through this process of, being put back on the track to on the right road and realizing I need to change my life. When I end up in the parachute regiment, I'm now looking at people who'd all, I, it was literally just after the Falklands War, everybody had been to war. So I remember looking at them thinking, wow, these have been through the mill, they've been tested, they've seen people die around them. And there were such nice, hard, humble people. There were no nonsense people. None of this mamby pamby old, you know, like we have today. It's but no bullshit. You will do this. It's black and white. And they weren't bullies, they, they were fair. And my instructor was a Scouse guy called um, Scouse Majerison, Corporal Majerison. And he was just, I remember seeing him 
for the first time looking at him and he had a massive scar across his face, still healing. He'd been shot in the face in the forklifts. And it, it, it was like it never happened. He didn't even talk about it. And he was just bang. You could see the hardness in his face and the professionalism in this guy. And I look at him thinking, wow. And as a young kid staring at him thinking, I want to be like him. But I knew it was a long road to get to where he's been. You know, I've got to get through training. But looking at he's my instructor. And I thought, there's my role model right there. I want to be like him. And that's what I wanted. And he was nothing. It was another rocket up my ass to say, don't give up. Don't give up. I can't go back to the life I did in the Midlands because I, I ain't going to survive it. You know, I want to make my family proud and of all the bad stuff I've done in the past as a kid. I want to put that record straight. I don't want to be somebody decent. I want to do good things for good people and, and you know, be somebody. And there was my role model right there. And you were somebody in the parachute regiment, as I understand. Where did you get to um, in, in the paras? I, um, you know, after I'd done a number of uh, tours with the parachute regiment, jungle tours, ex exercises and operational tours successfully, including Northern Ireland, where we'd lost about five people, I think, on one particular time, which was quite sad. But but when seeing real conflict and war and, and the, the, what that really means and, and seeing somebody dead properly for the first time that you really respected and for, you know, that guy was trying to just do a good thing for someone else, actually, and change his world or whatever situation for, a, for, for the greater good and he's paid with his life. And that was in Belize. I just joined. I, I just finished training and got through all the training. I was a champion recruit. I went to my battalion. And when I went to the battalion, my battalion was already posted out to Belize. So I had about a week with the rest of the lads that we passed out, four of us, just hanging around doing what they call rear party. So you do the guards on the gate and you get to learn. And there's some old guys there that have been in the parachute regiment to war and they're probably going to be leaving. So they stay behind and do the guard duties at the camp. And there was one particular guy called Benny, Benny Bentel, who was a wonderful guy. And he actually, he was just back, staying back for a short period. And then he was going back out to Belize just to finish that tour off. And then he was leaving the military. He'd been to the Falklands. He'd been in the military for a long time. He was getting married. So he was going to do the Belize tour just to get some money behind him so he can get married, do his, get his wedding out of the way and all that. Wonderful guy. And he was the first time after going through uh, all the training where Somebody kind of sat down to us instead of shouting at us, you know, because he's military, you get screaming and shouting to, to get you through the strain. He was the one who sat down and told us what it's all about. He goes, guys, you know, this is what you need to look out for. This is what you don't want to be doing. Don't try and do this. And he was great. He was a brilliant, brilliant guy. So I then go out to Belize and I'm now new there, you know, this new guy, learning eyes this wide, learning all these new skills and learning the, the lessons he, he was telling me as well. And then one day, while I was in Belize, uh, the alarms went off on the camp to say, "There's a something's bad, something's happened. He kind of knew something, someone's probably died. Anyway, long story short, I was down near the gym by the uh, pool and the, the open plane where the helicopter landed. And as the helicopter landed and brought the body off, it was Benny, it was that guy. And for me, my whole life just sank. The reality of where I was and what world I was in now, just bang unfolded in front of me. And I remember looking at him thinking, I was only speaking to him two months ago. He was the one who would give me all the advice and that great information. And the poor guy I remember was only out here to the end of the story, he was killed and got shot. Did that make you feel 
angry or just be like, oh my God, I can't do this. Or obviously you didn't quit. Um, but how did it make you feel? Because I guess everyone has must have a very different reaction to that. And that would determine where how you go forward. I think I had um, an array of emotions in a very short period of time, you know, from anger to disbelief to sadness to thinking what am i doing why am i here i don't want to be the end up like this and i think i processed all the all that pretty quickly went i'm here for a reason same reason he was he was here you know unfortunately his life's been taken but i'm pretty sure he wouldn't have changed any obviously not wanting to get killed the, the jobs he's been doing and what we was there for was the right reason i just thought it gave me it gave me strength if nothing if i'm honest he said to me you know I'm, I'm doing it for good to for good people like him to carry on his name now and what he's done and the next. It just made me stronger and thought, if it happens to me, it happens to me. I hope it don't, of course, but that's the game I'm in. So it just it, it just made me feel I've just got to be more aware and just learn lessons and just go forward. Just don't give up. You mentioned reason there. Um, I've spoken to um, a number of vets and veterans and 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 they've all mentioned different things about why they, they joined up. What was your main reason when you mentioned that I had a reason? The reason There's a number of reasons why I joined up. I think if you had to put them in a list, one was I felt I had to. I needed somebody, a stronger structure around me to survive. I need to be directed. I need to be in, a, in an environment where I ain't going to get away with what I get away with. I need, I needed a harder discipline. My dad was a wonderful discipline there in uh, the family. It's just, he couldn't control me. He was working 12 hour shifts most of the time. Mom was doing the same. And I was, I was manipulating. And I knew I was, you know, looking back, it's one of the biggest regrets I had, but in the military, Hey, you, you, if you stepped out of line, you were going to get put back in line. That's how it was. And that's how it should be. And I knew that was the reason I knew I needed that. I needed that. I also needed, you know, I needed to be, try and be somebody, to try and do something good. I, know, I wanted to do this because I knew what the military were doing. I was in the cadets for six years. Mm. And I spoke to all my friends who before me who had been in the cadets and been to war, not just war, been in the military and doing great things in UK and all around the world, not just in war, in, in general life anyway, in natural disasters and just doing the job, the peacekeeping type jobs. And I listened to them for they're doing it for the greater good. You know, the army gets a bad reputation sometimes. People go, army, oh, it's all guns and killing. It's far from it. It's, it's actually the opposite. Yeah. You're out there actually saving lives and changing lives and doing great things. And you're giving one hell of a sacrifice. You're sacrificing yourself, yeah. possibly your own life, your family, everything that's left and brought you into the world, you know? It's a big sacrifice. And I thought I want to, that's another reason I want to do it. I want to I do so. I want to give something back. Not only did you serve, you went on to the SAS. Can you talk, I know you can't talk fully about it, but can you tell me a little bit about the selection process? Because I think that's quite relevant to what you're doing today, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's it's meant to be, it is the most, one of the most gruelling selections. Can you, can you talk me through it? I can tell you straight to your face right now. It is the hardest selection process in the world. And it is the best special forces unit in the world. I've worked with all, either with or against most special forces around the globe. And we are heads and shoulders above everyone. Fact. So, you know, in order to get to that sort of unit, it's, it's one hell of a process. 
it's a tough, it, you never know from day to day, minute to minute, whether you're going to get through it. It really is a tough old process. And I remember turning up and I think it was 183 of us started and seven of us or eight of us finished, seven of us finished and thinking, wow, it, it, you just relentlessly being pushed physically, mentally. And one of the hardest parts of that process, which is different to everything you see on the TV, the TV show and SAS selection is totally different. There's one ingredient, I would say, a couple of ingredients, you know, obviously the name, SAS, but two, the ingredient on the show that when we DS grilling these celebrities and these uh, normal guys and girls that come on the show, we call it a course, not a show, by the way. We take it very serious. We're looking for the ingredient, and the ingredient is you. Who are you? We don't care if you're the fastest, the fittest. Who actually are you when we, when you're out of your comfort zone? What what are, what makes you tick? Have you got the you know the drive to get up and go when everything's against you? Have you can you think outside the box? And I don't think many people do know how they do cope in those situations. Because let's face it, we're not put in those. The most stressful situation is you know, God, shit, I've got a bill or my tax to pay or, you, you know, there are, of course, there are stressful situations, there's horrible things that happen, you, there's, there's a loss of loved ones, but the fact that you put yourself through um, an extreme physical and mental endurance uh, every, pretty much every second of the, of the day, I mean, how did you get through that? What does it take mentally to get through it? And physically, and I think the physical side is probably more well known because because you, you see it. But it would be great to understand what you need mentally. It, it, firstly, you've got to want it. You've got to want to be there. As soon as you don't want to be there, you, you come out with a list of excuses. I'm missing my family. They're this, they're that. You know, and it is excuses. And just just to just to finish off that last bit about selection, you know. So you're looking for the person and. You got to put them through, a, a, make them uncomfortable, and try and get them to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. No one's really comfortable, with it, but that's what you're going to be in. It's going to be a hard, tough world. There's no luxuries. It's going to be hard. It's going to be horrendous. But you can do it as long as your mind tells you you can do it. Your mind is the biggest tool in your army, you know. And when you go on food selection, you, you kind of set yourself barriers of, I'll take it week by week. So you, you know you're really giving it all you've got, and you keep going and open. You're doing good enough, and you, you're beating the times on the fitness. You're doing the challenges mentally, whatever they're asking you to do. And then when you get exhausted, which you do, you then go, oh, "I'll take it day by day," and you literally end up hour by hour. But what you don't do is give up. Don't be afraid to be told you didn't do great on that or whatever. Don't take that too harsh. Take it on the chin and go forward again. So you've got to keep that mental drive. Is I ain't going to give up. I'm going to keep going and keep going. And your body will follow it as much as it hurts. And it's painful. As long as your mind, your mind, once your mind gives up, your body gives up. Mm. Your body will give up if it's broken, injured. You know, as long as you're not injured, your body will go a lot further than you actually think it will go. But your mind drag, drags you through it. Again, a big thing we're looking for is um, self-motivation. Now, in the army, normal units and the parachute and, and marines and all the rest of it you know you are pushed by your mates you are screaming and shouting at to get up there you know if you're falling behind then grab you and take you with them and rightly so because we need to and in when you're in battle even with the regiment that's what you'd have to do you do it but we're looking for somebody who's got that self-motivation not somebody who needs to be shouted at on SAS selection you don't get shouted at not once you get told you get asked what to do be on the square tomorrow morning at five o'clock with your Bergen weighing 80 pounds 
be ready to go on a march of, they won't tell you how far. That's it. You turn up with all the equipment. They don't scream and shit like the parachute. You'd be like, right, on parade, blah, blah, blah. You'll be inspected. You're expected to be there with the kit. You're asked to do it. And, and for the first time in your military career, because you ain't been shouted at, some people can't get themselves up and do that. They need that person to drag them out of bed and tell them to be there and shout them. And we're not looking for that in the SES because you ain't going to be, a lot of the time, you're going to be on your own beyond the enemy lines doing yeah. stuff. You know, it's no one there to drag. You've got to be able to get yourself on and move forward. So that's the big ingredient that a lot of people can't, men, a lot of men can't handle, not being dragged. And then they'll find an excuse, you know, oh, after, you know, 10 days, 20 days of marching relentless over the hills, hundreds of kilometers with these houses on your back and you've got your knees are swollen, your back's killing you, you're aching. The lying in bed that morning is tipping down around and it's four foot in the morning. You've you got to get up. So, and most people are like, oh, I can't be asked. I'm not going to do it. And then the directing staff are walking and go, no problem. You stay in bed, keep yourself warm. When you're ready, pack your kit and just go, you're done. Because we're not looking for that. But the guy who then, the people who can then get up, you know, feeling uncomfortable, got sores to sort out on the back and their ankles, and who gets them, that's who we're looking for. Because it been behind the lines, that's what you're going to be doing. You're, gonna, you're on your own. And that's why so many people fail and give up. But, <laughs> 99% of those people have been there and done it. I'll turn around and make an excuse. Oh, I didn't get on with the directing stuff. I was missing being on my, you know, it wasn't for me. Of course it wasn't for you because you weren't tough enough to do it. What ingredients do you think you had that really made it through? Was there times that you just thought, fuck it, I want to give this up. I can't do it. I'd rather stay in bed. Because nobody likes, nobody likes failure. And I'm a, I think failure to me is, that's it, I'm now being buried because I won't give up. I'll go and go and go. I'm not saying I'll always achieve because I haven't, I haven't achieved everything. But in my mind, I think my, my growing up and background has given me a good foundation. Mm. So I've got the hardcore. I'm not afraid of anything really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it as best I can. And it's just that mindset of, I want to do this. I've got to do it. I don't want to fail it. And in my head, you know, that always in my always little fervor in my head. I used to have that in my head all the time. And I also had there used to be a song called Ain't Never Gonna Break My Stride. And I'd say keep saying it as much as I was aching and it was killing me. I could see a little dot in the distance, which is the guy on the same route as me, who probably set off 20 minutes before me. And I just go, I'd look up and go, right, there he is, check my compass, put my compass away. And I'd be gone really blasting away, saying this to myself. And Forget the pain, forget the pain. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, and then I look up and he's bigger, he's bigger, he's bigger, and then I'm past him. Then the next one, the next one. And that's what I kept doing. And I always do it, you know, I'll just keep going. You mentioned fear, and I, I think that's something that that you know you, you watch these the TV series, and um I, I put my hand up though, I'm bloody scared. There was no way that I could do that, but you just said you're not frightened of anything. Is that true? You're not frightened of anything? And if so, how do you control your fear if you get it? I, I, I don't know. I haven't found anything I'm really petrified of. Or Are you scared of dying? Are you frightened of dying? No. I don't. Of course, I don't want to die. No one, you, want to, you want to see your family grow up. You want to see, you know, that, but I'm not afraid of dying. No, because it's going to come. It's inevitable, isn't it? No one gets out of this life alive. That's a, that's a fact. You know, we all know that. Uh, you know, but I'm not afraid of dying now. 
that is that's one thing that we've got definitely guaranteed yeah we're, we're all gonna die at some time uh, and i mean uh, you can't talk in detail about um the stuff that went on in the sas um and yeah. the operational tours is there anything that you can talk about if i if i asked you what one of your most challenging moments was no, I mean, I can't talk about direct operational stuff, but I mean, I was fortunate enough in the military, in the SAS especially, to, you know, do everything a soldier wanted to do. You know, you want to be in battle and see what you're really going to be like. And I was fortunate with the regiment to do that numerous occasions, a lot. Also, you know, to be able to do hostage rescue, go and rescue somebody when everything's against you and some poor person's been captured and you just think, I was fortunate enough to do that as well. And... When something like that happens and you you successfully, it's like winning the lottery. It really is, you know. And yeah, and and indicting people for war crimes, you know, people of the Bosnia War, those people who are doing what they're doing like now in Ukraine and going after them people after the war and, and getting them with the greatest jobs we ever did. And you know, I'm sure they'll be doing it again soon. You were involved as well in the, the London bombings and you said that the hostage, how do you prepare mentally for that? Is there a preparation that you go through? Or? Oh, yeah, I mean, your whole military life within the regiment, you're on certain sort of um, operational sta statuses, you know, set up for world, you know, being abroad to do operations in UK operations, counter-terrorists in the UK's uh, a speciality that we have, and we, we take a period of time where you deal with that. And at the time, the London bombs, and that's what our role was. We were the counter-terrorist team, so we were ready for it. We, we trained, I say we were ready for it, you're never ready for really what's going to happen. Intelligence at the time told us other things were going on. So you've got 10 crocodiles coming towards your boat, if you like. It's just, it's waiting for that moment to see which crocodile gets closest. And the London bombings one was not the crocodile we were expecting. Although we, it was on the radar somewhere, that came a little bit of there was other things more imminent, supposedly, and was, and I think probably we sort of managed to halt that quickly because of what happened in London, and then then you deal with it. And we train for every type of operation and, and every situation as we can, but there's always something. It never goes to plan because there's always something surreal. There's always something different happens, you know, and we hadn't had suicide bombers on the mainland, apparently, and... You know, we had to deal with that. So it was, yeah, you were ready for it. And it's about being able to think on your feet as well and and be able to read a situation and go, wow, find another way of skinning that cat. Because there's no template to dealing with that situation or that situation. There's a template to get you to where you need to be and a kind of guideline. Then you've got to think outside the box and go, bang, well, this is happening now. This is how we're going to deal with it. Is the secret in getting to that decision quickly? If something like you say, something hasn't gone to plan, let's face it, all the best things don't go to plan is the decision making process something that you sort of deliver over or is it got to be quick most of our stuff is instinctive stuff you know you always start with a plan hopefully to get to it to the start point whether that's coming in from the skydive skydiving in coming under the sea over the sea over land or whatever it is but you always find we plan for getting to that point and then hopefully taking on this situation and normally you'll get to the start point normally not, that doesn't always happen as planned and then as soon as you step off that helicopter or you've landed and you parachute it all goes to ratchet it's all different Fuck. 
there's 50 more people here or a lot more people here than we expected. There's a situation we weren't expecting. There's school in the middle with children in it. There's huh. this, there's that. So you got to think on your feet. So that comes with um, experience and time, you know, doing other operations and, and tr- lots of training and all that experience. So you, you, you've got a bag of tricks that you can quickly pull out and go think on your feet, go, right, okay, we need to go around that, we need to do this, we need to that, create a distraction, we need to, whatever it might be. And that, that's instinctive because all operational, live operational, when you're coming into combat, is it's not textbook. There's no textbook way of doing anything. You don't know who's going to be in front of you. You know, we went from somebody trying to kill you directly to now he's a running bomb. And the fact that you're still in front of me, you probably, if you don't don't stop him quickly, he's going to take you out anyway. I presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're put into situations where it's either that person's life or that person's death. Or it, it, is, have you been in those situations where it's... Yeah, but you have to make that decision quick. You And, and this is where I think the army, the military lads have been let down a lot, especially, you know, going back to the old days in Northern Ireland where all of a sudden, oh, no, no, but you shot someone, so you did this. It, it's not as straightforward as that. There's so many distractions going on and other things. That's all, that soldier's got a split seconds, I think. And, you know, and, and if he sees danger and, and, and that danger is directly at him, it's him or, or me, or it's him or you, your, his comrade, he's got to make that decision quick. He hasn't got a second so, so you've got to analyze everything immediately and go, you know, is it a threat? It's a threat. I've got to stop it. And if the only way to stop it is by you know, maximum, not I mean, it's always minimum force. That force might be to shoot that person or take them down. And that's what you got to do. And you train for that all the time, but it's, it's the hardest decision in the world. And it's easy for people to sit back late and criticize and go, oh, well, you shot that guy. And actually it wasn't a rifle he had, it was an umbrella. And I mean, in the midst of whatever, it might be the case. And I'm sure that soldier, if that was the case, I'm, that's a wild example, but, you know, that soldier is then beating himself up. You know, yeah. we're not the people. You're like, nobody wants to go in there to take anybody's life at all. A soldier's decisions are, are really, really difficult. And it and it's, it's horrendous, in fact, you know. And a lot of these soldiers as well are young, away from home, you know, and, and they've got all that. But, but they the, the train, they train well, they train hard. And 99.9% of the time, those decisions are right. And I hate the way that, you know, you get ripped apart by the 1%, if that, by the media of how it's terrible, not supporting people. Yeah. Don't go out to do atrocities. No, no, I completely agree, completely agree. did you, Mark, ever suffer, I mean, again, speaking to a lot of veterans from, from PTSD? No, no, I didn't. Um, you know, I, I struggled with understanding what PTSD was. I, I was like, I, I didn't believe in it because, you know, all the stuff I've done and been through, it never bothered me. I would say it would never bothered me. I think about situations. I think about people that have been with me that didn't come back. I think I thought about the, the, the situations where I probably still should not be stood here. But I don't, it doesn't drag me down. You know, sometimes I get to a point where I feel a little bit darker, but I'll go and have a beer and it's, I'm sorted. But the thing is, every human being is different. We're different, you know? So I don't judge anybody that has, has had problems. I started to realize that PTSD is real. In, in the soldier's world, 
when a very, very close friend of mine had a very bad situation and probably should never come out of it, but he did. And he was just the same as I, and he'd been through a lot of stuff before and never bothered him. And then one night we're having a beer and he broke down. He's literally grabbing me, crying. I can't hold a handle a man crying on me. I'm like, what the fuck? We sat down and we spoke a lot about it. And then I realised it is real. It is true. And, you know, but then I used to think, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, soldier's life is tough. It's hard. We do train. We do kind of, you are aware you're going to go into battle. So you kind of should be pre-ready for it. But some stuff you can't, you know, you can't process later on. And then I used to always say to myself, hang on a minute, there's nurses dealing with children dying of cancer every day. How the hell are they dealing with this? How are they going through it? Yeah. I'm jumping back and forward here a little bit, but my point is we are all different. It's true. It is true. And it's terrible for people who've got it. It really is. The issue I have with it is, you know, and I, I say it on the talks and I say a lot is today, if somebody hasn't got the latest designer genes or the internet for two hours, they've got fucking PTSD. They've yeah. got a mental problem. And that's a problem. And all these type of people are jumping on this bandwagon and we can't deny them because you don't know what's inside someone's head. But the people who really need the help then, that gets diluted. And that's why we're having the situations today of so many poor people that are taking their own lives because they can't, they're not getting the help that we need. And I'm going to deal purely with soldiers, a lot of those people out there have got their own reasons for having PTSD and mental illness. Like I say, nurses, doctors, firemen, policemen, all sorts of industries, normal civilians because of whatever. But it's just, you know, it's, it's an horrendous situation, but it's just hard to know who has and who doesn't have it. It's there. But me personally, I've never, I've, I have, you know, I have my moments, a smell, a sound, or a picture will remind me of something. And it's just a sad moment. I mean, I've just been through a lot of sadness very recently, but we just have to, I'm the sort of guy that I deal with it my way, which is, it's happened. I can't change it. It is sad. And I can't sit here in a pity party because only I know what's in my head and my mind. And, People can't help me if I don't tell them. So I get, I get, I always say, get up and go for it. Just get up and go. It's uncomfortable. It's going to hurt, but it's going to hurt less because I'm going to get through this quickly by doing something about it. Accepting it is the key. So you would accept it and get up and, and do something about it. And I would say the same thing. It's a process in time. It's happened and it will get better as long as I do something about it. If I sit here, moping to myself and thinking that's everything's against me, then it's going to take a period. I'm probably might not get out of it. Or it's going to take a lot, lot longer than it should do. I just go, okay, it's happened. And I'm talking about death, mm. loss of, you know. And, and I know you, you lost your parents within weeks of each other. That must've been quite a dramatic period for you. That, that's probably for me personally, the closest to PTSD I'd had, I'd had at that time. And not the war and the conflict and the death of friends and whatever else that you know because you then realize somebody's so close to you i can't have that chat with my mom and dad again there's so many things mm. i wanted to do i wanted to tell them and you we all do we all go ah oh, I'll, I'll do it another time so my advice to anybody is if you something you want to tell your parents or do or someone you love do it do it and don't fall out with people and family because the worst thing you know you don't know you have that argument over something stupid ain't worth it 
then the next thing you hear, they're dead. You're never gonna, you're gonna, you've got that in your mind for the rest of your life. When you have those tough moments, and I don't know if you sort of reflect back on it, are there, are there things that you do to work through it? Do you have tools and techniques? I mean, you said- yeah, I do. I, I, my fitness is my decompression. I'll get up and I'll go for a jog. I'm not saying go out and thrash yourself. I'll get up and go for a walk, go for a run, or get out in the woods and just realize what's around you and how precious this everything is, you know? Yeah. And take the dog for a walk. Get out and take yeah. the dog. Get up, do some physical. Some physical decompresses you and then do a little bit more, a little bit more. Then also you your mind switched to improving your own mind and body state. That takes away that sadness again. Mm. And you know, people go, Well, I can't do that because I'm in a wheelchair. Like, but you can. You can. There's certain things you can do, you know, you can do exercise with your arms, with, with whatever you got that works or not. So everybody can do something. But for me, that's what I do. I, my fitness or getting out, getting up and moving forward. After FAS, I let, so like after the SAS, um, yeah. you went to a bodyguard for some of yeah. the most famous people. Um, I'm listing a few, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, uh, Michael Caine, um, Tom Cruise. There was there's a fair few there. What did you? How was that transition from the SAS, an elite elite soldier, to being in from being shot again, but this time by cameras? Right, <laughs> very different. Yeah, it was yeah. It, it was it was funny because I mean before I left, I did a little moonlighting. You know, trying. You always at the point. In, where you think I want to change my life now? I've done thirty odd years in the military. What do I do next? And a natural progression for most military people is security based stuff anyway. A friend of mine had a security company that was looking after celebs and and other high ranking people, um, and just asked me, "Do you want to do a little bit of work for us? Help me out?" And I went, "Yeah." So I did a few weekends, and I kind of enjoyed it, but I stayed in the background at, at the time. And then it was time to leave, and I ended up with a job with Brad and Angie. And that was an odd transition. I had, I was leaving. I, I wanted to leave. I didn't really want to go back into the Afghanistan and the security in Baghdad, you know, not without all the support that you had in the regiment. I thought, I've done all that. It's too risky. A lot of money, but it's not really what I want to do. I don't want to run around with a bunch of lunatics that I don't know carrying weapons in a very hostile. And, and so the a celebrity option of security was... The option for me because I, it, you know, I hadn't done a little bit of moonlighting. I, I knew I already had all the skills. All I have to do is tone it all down to fit what they need. It's about their personal lives and protecting that. Not so much the physical side; it's more their image. I, mm -hmm. I kind of learned as well, like you said, not being shot, shot at anymore with a gun. It's now with a camera. But so I stepped out, and bearing in mind Brad and Angie at the time were like the number one A-list in the world. So I've gone from this world of. No one knows who I am, denied who I am because who but I needed a job and I stepped first job, a proper job I got, full job was that. So to me, it was like the weirdest time in my life. I, I love the job, taking care of it. It was easy. It was staying out the media, people press, who is this guy? Is this trying to hide who I was? And I found that really uncomfortable. Everybody had a story about me, where I was and what who I was in the SAS, I was in all sorts of stuff, nonsense. But I just never confirmed any of it. I just ignored it just leave it let them build their own stories and you know protect my own little bit of uh, sort of security as well as theirs and that that was the difficult a bit getting into that, that life and then then i just said i just i've got to i've just got to accept who i am and, and get on with it
and now you're the star in, 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 in SAS who dares win. So you, you are now truly in the public light. How, how do you deal with being in the public light now? You know what? I love it. Sonia, I love it. I didn't think I would. Like I say, I was when I first started, you know, doing the bodyguard and stuff, and I was in the public light anyway. Then I don't, there was already a fan page and all that sort of craziness, and I was like dipping my toe in the water. And not, and I thought, I've got, if I'm going to do this, I might as well just do it, do it properly, and make the best of it. So you know, it's only about three or four years ago, really, that I really did. I've started to really embrace it. I love what it gives me. I love the platform because it gives me great reach to help. I've got a, a number of charities, my charity in Haiti, which is my main one. I've got a military charity as well. It gives me so much reach to support and help them. You know, like right now, we're building an academy for the kids in uh, Haiti. Yes. And just because of where I'm at. And the people are brilliant. You know, the people who follow us, and all, they're, they're fantastic. The, the donations and the help they give us. So I, I, I love it. I love where I am. I like walking downtown now. And people come to me, can I get a selfie? I don't get any, generally any idiots going to want to fight me and none of that stuff. They're good people, you know. And then I think back to the time when I used to work with all these celebs and the joy I see on people's faces because they've just met Brad Pitt. Or this, that's mean that I'm not Brad Pitt, but I mean, people, oh, you're the guy from there, yeah, 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 shake their hand and they go, oh, man, I'm so, I, I didn't get it. I thought, I'm no different to you, which I ain't. I just did a different job and I'm on a TV. You know, we're all equals out there. We are. And I, I do, I love it. I love it. And I love the, like I say, I love the platform it gives. How does it feel? And I want to get on a little bit to SAS Who Does Win, but, but this is, I think this is fascinating because you are a huge role model for men. And I really don't think there's a lot of role models for men out there now. I think the role of the man has changed. Um, if I think of sort of our generation and to younger generations, men have, have changed. And I think there isn't a lot of people necessarily to look up to in, in the right way. I mean, of course, because there are great people out there, but you are a massive role model. How, do, how does that feel? And what sort of inspiration do well, you I'm, give other men? I appreciate saying that, <clears throat> you know, I want to be a role model, but I just think it is a shame we've lost role models. Mm. And, and you're right. Men are, are just because everybody's too scared to tell the truth. You know why? Because they're going to upset somebody. The world is full of being upset and not upset, and you just fucking get on with it. And that's what it needs. People to go, oh, they won't tell the truth. I can't say that anymore because, it, no, say it. And eventually people will get used to it again. We've lost, like I say, I used to gravitate towards old men. The old man in the park, I'll be there kicking a ball around and I go and sit with an old guy. Nobody does that anymore. And I find myself, I am the old. If I'm walking through the park, somebody kicks a ball to me, I've started doing it myself. First thing, where's your parents? It's fucking ridiculous. Instead of having a little kick around with the kids, because my family, oh, he's a weirdo. You're what's that bloody? You're like, it, it, the world's become ridiculous. Stop it. Stop the nonsense, is what I say. Quit it. Be yourself. Tell the truth. Life is hard. Life is a challenge. Say it as it is. And don't be afraid. And, and also, let's build our communities again. Instead of all individuals, it's all about me. It's all about, no, it's all about our communities. Yes. Coppers in the in your community that you can look up to, respect, learn discipline, you know, and, and parenting. Parenting is the biggest reason this is all screwed up. Mm. It's like people go, you can't have a certain dog because they're vicious. A, a pit bull. No, they're not. They become vicious because of the way you've treated it. Mm. You've got a bulldog. He's softer than frigging butter. 
It's how you bring them up. That's show them respect. And that's the same as kids. We're not role modeling. We're not, we're not gripping our kids. They're letting them get away with anything they want to do because we're too scared to upset. And, you know, schools, unbelievable. We can't have challenges in schools. What a nonsense. What a nonsense. Well, I think, yeah, um, I've got a lot of opinions on our education system. But yeah, that's for sure. Would you describe yourself as a compassionate man? Yeah, very compassionate. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I get emotional about all sorts of stuff. I get involved in everything. I hate seeing people suffering. I hate seeing animals suffering. Was there a place for emotions in the SAS? There is, you know, you've got, you've got to show empathy. You've got to, you, it, it, the beauty of the SAS is that the, the great smart things, you look at a situation and go, we realise, you know, like conflict and war isn't everybody in that country is now at war, so they're all the enemy. We, we realise most people there don't want to be in this situation. Most soldiers don't want to be in that situation. Mm. So we'll, we'll deal with that with a level of aggression or what it needs to get the job done. You know, to minimise um, people being killed or collateral damage or, you know, hurting people that don't need to be hurt, you know, just to take out the cancer. Mm. And the regiment's great for that. Take out the cancer and let everybody, you know, we, 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 we're we void of emotion at, at times and religion and culture and everything else. We, we, we're not, what's the problem? Who's the problem? It doesn't matter who you are, what you are. You're the problem. Your gender, your colour, your, it doesn't matter. You're the problem, so you will be taken out. There's nothing vindictive about that, other than you're a problem, and we're going to we're going to come and cut you out. Well, we know everyone around that is good people and suffer because of this, like we're having right now. Mm. So yeah, well, there is compassion. There is a, is you know empathy, and it's all mixed into. But you've got to stay focused to get the job done. Comparing and contrasting that to the TV set, to, to SAS Who Dares Wins, yeah. looking at the contestants, or, uh, contestants, I don't know if that's even the right word, but um, the recruits, the recruits on the, on the show. I mean, I, I'm watching that going, wow, wow, I can't even believe they're doing that. Um, how do you help them tap into always a little bit further? when they've got nothing left in the tank because you can see the they're pushing themselves now that's the key see that's like again that comes from experience of we're not there to break anybody anybody can break anybody mm. i could break you i could break anybody you could break me we can all do that it's not about breaking someone it's about peeling them back to that point of that is their most vulnerable point now they're right on the edge of mental and physical enough and at that point is recognizing that and being able to recognize that and then building them up again, giving them the encouragement, giving them the tools to go forward and, and improve. And that's what the show does. Those people, a lot of people come on there because they've got, they want to get off their shoulders. They want the really, and when they get it off the shoulders, you know, it's easy then to become all sympathetic. The sympathy sometimes makes it worse because then they're like, oh, we go, okay, we'll get you. That's awful. What's that right now? Let's go. Let's go. And as soon as you go, like, oh, okay, spark back into it. They, they drop all that emotion, they drop all that sadness, all that oh, me help me sketch and go, I'm going to do it. Everybody does it. And that's what we do. We appeal to that point of 
that's it now. Done. Bang. You're going to go forward. And it's, it's tough love. You're going to get tough love to get there because it's not me going to drag you there. You're going to take yourself there. And, you know, the fact that they didn't think they could do it, they thought they were probably going to get a little bit more sympathy and a little, no, no, done now. Here you go. And on, you can talk to anybody off the show. And I, I would say everybody, definitely everybody that I stay in touch with, which is, which is nearly everybody, they'll go, thank you. You've changed my life. Yeah. From celebrities to almost, they go, you've changed my life. That time you did that to us, or did it? And the beauty of that is that mirror room thing when that is exposed and we get them to their last run right that edge, we're helping them. We know don't go any further now because that's enough. We'll build up. There's 50,000 people the other side of that camera watching that TV going, I've been in that boat as well. Do you know the backgrounds? I mean, some the backgrounds are horrific. Some of the, the people, yeah. what they've been through, what they're going through, um, particularly the current series that, that's out there. I mean, do, are you aware of those of the backgrounds? Those mirror rooms, those mirror rooms, that's why we do it. We, we're not allowed to know their backstories. We're not allowed, allowed, we're not allowed to know who they are until they turn up that morning. Because you can become biased, you can become, you know, so so those stories, I have no idea what's going to come out of that person's mouth. And sometimes I found it really difficult when I used to do the interviews, the call mirror rooms, because I didn't know where to go with it. And I'm quite an aggressive guy at, at times and people seem to be trying to be cocky or try to, you know, flaunt that selling drugs is a fucking good thing. I just, I'll lose my shit. And, and so I don't know how to go at it. So when they're doing the mirror rooms now, you've got to, I've learned quite, do get a little bit, because everybody's got a story. You can't, the classic, you cannot judge a book by its cover. You just can't. So I give everybody the benefit of the doubt, no matter male, female or whatever they are, you know, chat, dig into a little bit, find a little bit about themselves and you can, you can read their face. There's something beyond that aggressive look that is quite sad. So let them get their, their, their story out, you know? And it's, you just don't know what's going to come out. So no, we don't know what's coming. We, it comes out in the minute. And sometimes I'm like that, you know, it, it, behind my, my face, I'm like, what the fuck, poor thing. I can't show that because I'm like, you know, that is terrible. That's awful. And then you go, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, right, where can I relate to what they're going through? And most of the time we've been there, not, you know, we've seen it and done it through the, our work or our personal life. And you just, how, how, how am I going to help them deal with this now? Okay, let them talk a little bit more, get off, and you can see when they're enough, enough stop it there, knock them down, build them back up again now, build them up, build them up. So those stories, you, you just don't know what's going to come out. Can, and can you spot the winners when, when, you, when you see the recruits, when you get to know them a little bit? Are you, like, back in the camp with Foxy going, they're winning, definitely, or he's not got a chance, she's not got a chance, or definitely him or her? I think you could, I would say about 80% can go off the gone by day one, by day two. You can roughly get that right, but there's always a shocker in the lock. There's always somebody. And just lately, the women have really, not that, you know, that they shouldn't, but some of the smaller women have just gone, where the hell has she just come from? Tough <laughs> women. They're carrying, carrying the, um, you know, the weight, almost their own fucking body weight, because they don't get any, ex there's no... Alleviation because your size and your weight and because you're female, everybody carries exactly the same. Wow, so they carry the same weight as the men, which usually twice their weight. That's something. Yeah. yeah, I know. And, you know, genetically, they're not built the same. Women have smaller frames. and yeah. But there's, there's no, okay, because you're, no, everybody carries exactly the same weight. 
everyone. Everybody does exactly the same task. Everybody gets spoke to exactly the same. That's what I'm saying. It, it's, you know, you want to talk about equal opportunities, equal opportunities right here. You, you wanted to come on here. You want to do the SAS so-called challenge as it is for the TV. This is, this is the, there's the bar. We're not lowering it for anybody. On that note, though, in real life, you don't have women in the SAS, do you? No, it's open to the SAS. The, the SAS is open to women. Mm. It's just no woman at the moment has done it. Yeah. We've worked with women. I've worked with women in the SAS, attached to the SAS, which are brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Their role for, for the women to do, uh, they are brilliant. Mm. And it's dangerous and ballsy. You know, it's, uh, eventually some a woman will get in. I'm pretty sure. But that's one woman. Mark, just sort of wrapping up this, you've been from a fighter boy to an SAS hero, bodyguard of celebrities, um, a TV star. Who is the real Mark Billy Billingham? You've just summed up that person you just said there. <laughs> no, I guess uh, that's a question you, I guess you should ask my wife. I mean, I, you know, I'm, an, I'm an emotional person. I think I'm, I try to stay humble as much as, much as I can. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a very generous person. I honestly, if a wage packet to me is putting a smile on somebody else's face, I, my, me and the wife, I would say 80% of our life right now is helping other people because we can, we should, and it's brilliant. You know, like I've already alluded to our program out in Haiti, you know, just knowing those little kids of little shits like I was, but not their full. I, 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 at least I had a choice. They don't have a choice. So, you know, they're orphans and living on the street and just see them putting them through schools. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. We watch them grow. And now these kids we've had off the street, some of them are working in our factories that they've got their own clothes. They've got their own education. They've got their own money. They've got their own property. Their own. It's amazing. And they're managers of, of factories. It's brilliant. And what I'll do is I'll take the link or we'll get the link for your charity and we'll put that in the show notes. You're also doing, and I've got to mention this, a UK tour where people can actually sit and listen to you on stage by, by being interviewed. Um, what can audiences expect from that and what can they take away? They can expect a lot less. What the current, what they won't be getting is quotes and statistics that make no sense. Little take a bite of the earth, take a negative, do the nonsense. I don't do any of that. What they'll get is the truth. They'll get a journey, which is my journey of trials and tribulations and lessons learned. And I'll tell you now from a nine-year-old to an 80-year-old, from a poor person to a rich person, everybody walks away going, wow, I've learned so much. Because some of it you'll relate to. Some of it, you know, you'll go, wow, that's how you deal with that. You know, so everybody goes away with it. It's great. I love doing it. So, yeah, that's what it's about. It's, it's about my life's journey. You know, I'm not telling people how to live their life. I tell them how to live mine and all the lessons learned. You know, going from, you know, a poor background to having nothing and being in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble, and almost being killed at the age of 15 and, and another being in all sorts of trouble to actually being decorated by the Queen, to being on TV. To, so you can turn your life around, you know. So it's a, that sort of journey. I mean, there were so many things you were nearly killed in your childhood. I, I would advise anyone to buy your book. As I say, I was totally engrossed. It was fantastic. But Mark, my final question, and I'm gutted to come to the end of this. Um, if you were to meet your little self, that little naughty boy, the boy that was fighting in Warsaw, 
knowing what you know now, mm. what what would you tell him to do more of? I would tell him to finish his education. So get your education. Be respectful to your parents and everybody around you. That's what I'd say. Because I wasn't. And, you know, people say to me, my auntie and stuff, you put the grey in your mum's head. I put my mum and dad through so much worry and stuff. I wish I'd never have done that. So just be respectful and, and, and have discipline and enjoy what you have. And be a good person. Don't be a dick. What a great moment to end. Mark, thank you so much for being on my, a guest on my show and I look forward to meeting you one day in person. All right, Sonia. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.